Welcome to the Red Diamond Report Podcast. I'm your host, Wilton Jackson, and I have another exciting episode for you. I sat down with Mia Berry, a senior HBCU reporter for ESPN's Anscape. Berry attended Notre Dame as a first-generation college student. She honed her sports journalism skills through multiple internships and reporting experiences at the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, and the Detroit Free Press prior to joining ESPN. While Barry did not attend an HBCU, the Detroit native has roots within the HBCU landscape. In fact, during the episode, Barry dives into how reporting on the HBCU beat often goes beyond a team's record of wins and losses and examines the culture, history, and tradition that are deeply embedded within those institutions. Sit back and get ready to listen as she discusses her introduction to HBCU culture, the role of HBCU culture in her storytelling, what Big Sean means to Detroit, as well as the top teams to win the SWAC in MIAC, and more. This is the Red Diamond Report Podcast. Let's get it. Welcome to the Red Diamond Report podcast. I'm your host, Wilson Jackson, and today we have another great guest. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, she is a phenomenal reporter. Uh, I met Mia Berry. She's an HBCU reporter for ESPN's Anscape. Uh, Mia, we've been, you know, following each other along the sidelines covering HBCU sports uh, probably for like the last two years, I know for sure. Uh, it's good to have you on the show. Well, thank you for having me. I, you know, started it off. I'm like, I haven't seen you since the Celebration Bowl, so it's great to catch up, great to talk, yes. great to share my story as well. So I'm happy you thought of me, happy to be here. Absolutely, Mia, absolutely. So before we get things started, I want you to tell the listeners and viewers a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, you already know my name, Mia Berry, Detroit, born and raised. So all my Detroiters, what up, though? You already know, <laughs> Detroit through and through. Notre Dame graduate, so we're going to talk a little bit about going to a PWI covering HBCUs a little bit later, but I am a senior HBCU reporter for ESPN's Anscape, so everyone's familiar with ESPN's brand, but Anscape is, we do a little things different. We're centered and focused on Black culture and Black experience, so we see, so we try to write and report through a different lens. We don't just report, you know, sports or culture we go deeper and we dive deep into the stories, the traditions of, you know, African-Americans and Africans all across the diaspora. So that's what pretty much what I do at Anscape. Um, believe it or not, some people don't know, like you said, the platform Anscape for ESPN. And when I've tried to describe to them and, and, and really tell them what it is, and I'm sure you have as well, uh, what would you say is the most rewarding part? I, I get that you just listed that you you know what the platform does what it advocates what it stands for but what's the most rewarding part for you in terms of being a reporter for the platform i would say working with the office that is primarily african-american you know before i even got this job i've done a lot of internships i've been in boston i've been in la dc and you know going into a newsroom i'm the minority i understand it for one i'm a woman Right. I'm a black woman at that. So those are those two strikes. You don't see too many black women in the newsroom or right. any type of, you know, 
website sporting. So when I came into Anscape and then you log on to that first meeting and I'm like, oh, black people, black women, black men, we got everything. And it's just beautiful to be in a workspace that you're comfortable. It's actually like the HBCU space almost. That's one thing, you know, PWI being like the token black person or being like the only black person in a space, knowing that you have to represent for your entire race and culture. Whereas being in a space where you have people that understand you, understand the culture. And I also think that's a testament to some of the good work we do. You know, some people say they're about culture. They're about elevation of black people, but don't hire black writers. So it kind of misses a little bit with Anscape. No, we have some of the best African-American writers across the country. And I'm proud to be a part of that. I'm proud to be in that, you know, rich wealth. We have Martenzi. We have Mark Spears. We have so many Sheila Matthews, so many good black journalists that not only do we work together, but me being a little bit younger. I, I forgot. This, I don't tell my age anymore because I'm tired of people saying <laughs> I have kids that age. But <laughs> it's funny. Oh, one one person got a grandkid at my age. I said, let me be nice. <laughs> but they're also willing to take that time to mentor you. I think that's the most rewarding part, you know, for a young, young journalist fresh out of college coming into their first professional job, being around, you know, this nice familial culture with Anscape, Black writers. Everyone wants to see everybody win and succeed. And I think a lot of our readers, a lot of our viewers see that. Being that you sit in the intersection between sports, race and, and other elements as well in uh, dealing with HBCUs. What's the biggest difference that you see in the culture of, let's say, covering sports at PWIs and that HBCU culture? Because, I mean, it's so it's a it's a term. It's a phrase that we hear often, but it's something about HBCU culture that makes it stick out beyond anything that we know. How would you describe that HBCU culture? I would say it's not superficial, if that makes sense. I just growing up you know, being at Notre Dame, our care for the athletes was pretty much what you did on the field. What that, what did the scoreboard say after that? You know, there were cultural things that I didn't always get. They're playing Sweet Caroline. I had to learn that song. <laughs> They're playing Taylor Swift. Yeah. Sorry, Swifties. I had to learn a couple songs. It's just, you know, if you're not familiar with that culture, you really feel like you stick out. Right. HBCUs, I'm not an HBCU grad. I'm very open and honest about that. I never want to claim to be something that I'm not. And I will go, I will dive deep later about how much help I've had along the way. But just HBCU, I love the way they've adopted me into, you know, the HBCU culture. I've had people that I never knew that said, hey, let me pull you to the side. Let me tell you a couple things. Let's talk. Let's, you know. Let's talk. Let's figure some stuff out. Run some stuff past me. I can bounce ideas off. And this is coming from just someone that doesn't. I tell people I want to know their name. Oh, OK. Because at first they're like, I thought you would have went. You look like a Spellman night to me. You oh, look wow. like you would have went to Howard. <laughs> One thing is Spellman was on my top three. I had someone. I was in Atlanta when they said that. They said, I said, I didn't go to Spellman. They said, you went to Clark. I didn't go to Clark. But I oh. love how the environment is. And I love how the care for every student and student athlete doesn't stop at their performance it's they care 
about the athletes beyond what they do on the field. It's off the field. They care about students, that one-on-one time, the smaller class sizes, the teachers calling them. Just being on Twitter, I'm just reading people's stories. Oh, yeah, I missed a, you know, I was going through a hard time. My professor reached out to me, made sure I graduated, I stayed on track. And I love hearing stuff like that because, honestly, I had some rough times. It was my family that got me through that. I think it means something a little bit differently when you go to an institution where it's the teacher's. They're making, they're working just as hard as your family. And I've been through that. I tell people all the time, I didn't think I was going to be a journalist. I thought I was going to be a doctor. And just going through that whole process, you know, the science, the weeder classes, and that feeling of being pushed out. I felt that. Thank God it kind of steered me into what his plan and purpose was for me. Exactly. You know, at the time I felt hurt, but understanding that. So when I see teachers at HBCUs, I talk to them, I get to know them and see how much they care for their students. I'm like, wow, I kind of wish I had that, you know, that high level of care. I did eventually at Notre Dame. I had, a, you know, you find a couple black teachers that didn't even teach journalism that saw you on campus and took you in and showed you that love and support. Right. But I was just thinking how much better would my college experience have been if every teacher, almost every teacher would have been like that. You're from Detroit. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm not from Detroit, but I just like when people say that. Like, <laughs> I, I really, I really, really, really admire when people say that. It's just, it's just, it just sounds good, but I know I can never truly understand what that really means. So I'm going to ask you as a, a, as a person who was born in Detroit, what does that mean? Like when somebody says, what up though? Like, what does that mean? Like, what what, what, what comes to your mind when, when someone says that and just being from Detroit? That's like when you hear, it's like our own like fraternity sorority. You hear what up, though? You real. You from the city. I know where you from. We have yeah. like other tests, like how do you pronounce this? Are you really from Detroit? Because some people be like, I'm from Detroit. And then I'm like, what part? They'd be Southfield. I'm like, that's the suburbs, baby. Mm-hmm. That's the suburbs. Yep. Anything past eight miles. <laughs> You don't belong. But that's kind of like our call out phrase. That's kind of that acknowledgement. You know, some, you know, black men, black people got the nod. You hear the what up, though? I'm like, that's fam right there. And when I tell you I've done the what up, those just feeling out of room and I heard somebody respond. I said Detroit. And one thing about Detroit, like other cities, you know, Detroit has this rap. I know Detroit ain't innocent. Detroit's had, you know, a little bit of history. They had, for a while, I think they were top 10 violent cities in the United States. We still might be top 10. I'm, I'm, I pray for the city every night. But yeah. it's just that familiar. That's how I feel you about know, Jackson. <laughs> no. It's like someone, you know, when you grew up in an environment, there are certain things about me and the way I do things that not other people will understand. If you weren't from the city, you don't understand why I'm always – you know, you know, you have like certain tendencies, idiosyncrasies that certain people, you know, unless you grew up the way I grew up, you don't necessarily understand everything. So when I hear what up, though, I'm like, you know, that guard can come down a little bit. You mentioned so many things like just the culture. <laughs> the one thing you have not mentioned yet is the music and the artists. Now, first person that comes to my mind, Detroit wise, first person is Big Sean. I'm a huge Big Sean fan. I kid you not, growing up, okay, we know we knew about Eminem, but mm-hmm. I felt like growing up, Big Sean was that first black Detroit rapper that you really identified with 
because for right. one, he went to Cast Tech. Cast Tech is sorry, Renaissance, but it's probably the biggest and most well-known Detroit public school downtown in the heart. Back when I was coming up, they had like the top football program, back-to-back state champions. Cast Tech carried weight, and also Cast Tech. It was like everybody knows Cast Tech. I have relatives that went to school with him at the time, showing me yearbook pictures like this, Sean. Like, it just felt like that Mm -hmm. certain connection, like it was one off, you know, like one degree of separation from somebody actually knowing him. And then he's still in the city. I see videos, somebody pull up on the side of him. They having a whole conversation. I'm like, that is the dopest thing. So I will say growing up, Big Sean reminds me of middle school. That's where you like, oh, my God, Big Sean. You, I'm like, and then when he did that collab with Cash Money, I'm like, with Dance, I said, he made it. And that's the one thing I will say about Detroit. Anytime we really see somebody out there and making it, we support. Oh, how did you get into basketball? What made you interested um, in all of that? I grew up at the prime time. It was Detroit basketball. I started playing in like when I was five. So mm-hmm. that's right around the era when Detroit – was good started winning again i remember kindergarten that oh four kindergarten i was in kindergarten the first grade we went to the parade so mm-hmm. basketball was just such a big thing it was ingrained in detroit culture we were winning you know went back to the finals it was just a high time to where when i tell you basketball camps everything just popped up they're like oh my god pistons you know when a team's doing well the city takes note Shock were also doing well. First title, I believe, was in 03. So you had WNBA, NBA, Detroit doing well. So basketball was just huge at that point. I didn't know how tall I was going to be, but I just fell in love with ball. It was just something, you know, I did in the neighborhood. We had parts. It was that time I had with my dad, you know, just shooting around, just having fun. I met all my friends through ball. So played ball my entire life uh, got into volleyball in middle school just did two sports because volleyball kept me you know in shape for basketball there was no layover period and then high school doing volleyball oh you're kind of fast let's run some track why not how hard could it be to run when I tell you (laughs) they punished me and put me in that 400 I said and the worst part is they had us all race and I just ran it normally i didn't think anything of it like and apparently i had the fastest time little did i know the people i ran with purposely ran slower because they knew what they were doing like the juniors and the seniors they ran i'm like how did i i was wondering like how did i beat this person only to find out they didn't want to run that 400 (laughs) i said they left left you to do it oh our our 400 was half freshmen and then a couple seniors that they took from the mile and put them in the 400. So that's kind of how I got sucked into it. And I just like being active. I was that type of person where I'm still to this day, I work out. It's that, you know, I went to high school at country Detroit country day. Our motto was sound mind and a sound body. And I just still, I still incorporate that into my everyday life, you know, working out it's that stress relief it's that you know that's where I go get my mental health breaks I'll step out of work hey I'm about to go to the gym or I'll get a call saying hey can you talk 
they're like, do I hear running? Yes, you hear running. I'm at the gym. So that's kind of like one of the things that high school, you know, going through high school, going through school, I don't know, just like my solace, you know, basketball has always been that comfort zone, great memory, memories with friends and my father. So I just kind of kept it going. You mentioned this earlier. You went to Notre Dame. Very different from an HBCU experience. What led you to Notre Dame and why? Uh, just growing up, I was I was very sheltered growing up. So didn't really get out the house too much other than basketball. My grew up non-denominational Christian family, you know. So mom was really, you know, parents were strict. I'm grateful for that now. Because growing up, you have strict parents. You're like, oh, my gosh. Like, you're just kind of frustrated seeing your friends get to do stuff. But understanding, you know, the older you get, understanding a lot of that was protection. A lot of oh, things absolutely. that, yeah, a lot of things that, ha- you know, happen. I'm happy that my parents were a little, little bit stricter on me. So, you know, when it came time to decide college, it was just my mom basically told my parents told me, we want you to go somewhere where if something ever happens to you, we can hop in a car and get to you immediately. And that, you know, I'm from the Midwest. We drive. Like, I come from a family that used to drive from Detroit to Atlanta yearly. So they had drive, but they kind of kept it in a box. So it was really more so Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, somewhere relatively close. And I remember... My whole, most of my family went to Michigan. So that was, you know, that was the main pool. I kind of went a little different. I applied to Spelman just because I did have family in Atlanta and I thought my parents would be okay with, you know, pushing me, you know, letting me go down there because I did have a base. So it was, yeah. it was Michigan, Notre Dame, Northwestern, Spelman, and just, you know, doing my research, taking my visits. One, it came down to financial aid, you know, being a first gen college student, just being in that position, I was happy to go to college, but also you have to make it make sense for you. You I never wanted to go and graduate with like 80K in debt. I'm like, oh my God, I'll drown. So I'm already, you know, as a first gen kid, you already feel like you're kind of starting behind a little bit because a lot of the people I was talking to. They went to my mentor. She went to college. Her father went to college. Her mother, grandparents, they actually went pretty far back. So this whole process was new for me. So that's one thing. And also the thing about Notre Dame that separated it was faith. You know, growing up in that Christian background, being an usher at church, church twice a week. In the summer, they had church on Saturday. So I was in church Wednesday, Saturday, Sunday. And then we still did. My mom served in the church. So we had you know, they go do serve meetings on Tuesdays. So it's like, I've, I've been in the church half my life, pretty much. I st- I'm still in church Sunday and Wednesdays. I actually serve now. So that was, faith was a big thing. And just going, have an opportunity. Notre Dame pretty much paid for a group of us to, to go to Notre Dame, see the campus. And my mom saw how close it was. The Amtrak train was like four hours, three and a half, four hours. Perfect driving distance for her she drove me down it was three hours the way she the way she drives now is two and a half hours take that as you, <laughs> take that as you will but it's a very <laughs> close drive it's a very close drive and just one thing when I did feel out of place at Notre Dame 
I always could lean on my faith. They did have something. It's called Joyful Mass, which was basically a mass done in kind of like the African-American Methodist tradition. So we're singing some Kirk Franklin. We're singing some Fred Hammond. And I love that I can go to that type of space, connect, be with God. But also, you know, we still have mass. I went to Catholic mass, you know, something different. Still right. took things away from it. So that's faith is what really sold me. So even when I had those moments where I'm like, OMG, this is way different from Detroit. Right. You still found solace. You found peace. There were, you know, places where you could just go talk to a priest, go pray, which I appreciated. But looking back on it now, I'm grateful for my experience kind of causes you to get comfortable with yourself. I'm like, I'm black. It ain't going to change. So you, exactly. you kind of learn, you learn that being comfortable, being confident in yourself. And you also, you know, you also just appreciate that growth process. So now looking at it now, I'm like, okay, I'm happy to be in a position now to where if I did have children, maybe the reasons I chose a school was primarily financial Maybe I can help them out with that so it's not the same, you know, they do have an opportunity to go to an HBCU. I was okay exactly. with Spelman. I love Spelman. The funny thing is Spelman didn't have sports at this point. They got rid of their entire sports department, but I was still drawn to Spelman. Yeah. You know, maybe it was that, you know, stump the yard, that drum line growing up that made me want to go Definitely to a black house. Man, when I tell you back in the day, we used to take trips, so we had a portable DVD player. Yeah. I don't even think they still make them anymore, but we took so many trips, so we usually had two. Mm -hmm. Drumline, like the list of movies we had, we had Drumline, Lilo and Stitch, Nemo, Hawk. I was watching Drumline when I tell you that. I can't tell you. How, as someone who was in the band in high school and was a section leader of the drumline, listen to me. I watched drumline when I didn't have band practice in middle school. I watched drumline probably every day or every other day. Did you see the famous HBCU battles and they put Devin Miles in the sheet music? I said, oh, yes. perfect. Whoever did that one. So. Yes. That was like my introductory to HBCUs. What would be your top three HBCU classics? Oh, easy. Boombox. And it's oh. not even for football. Boombox no. is more so. Boombox is more so because my favorite two bands are going at it. Oh, absolutely. Human Jukebox and Sonic Boom. I'm not even worried about the football. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I want to see the bands. I don't yeah. care about it. With that matchup, you know, the matchup, okay, football. I, I want to see the bands. It's just yeah. something about Southern got that Southern got that flair. Jackson got that swag. I will say their drum line. It's just that swag. is smooth, like they like they cappers or something. It's just a very smooth wow. drum line that I appreciate. Wow. Uh, <laughs> but those I will say those two are two of my favorite bands. So Boombox is number one. You gotta go by you. Southern and Grambling, I like the rivalry that both of them can be 0 and 8 when they meet up. They playing both teams playing like they're 8 and 0. I never forget the year. I'm like Bayou Classic, you know, Grambling had a rough year. Mm -hmm. Southern, I'm like, okay, Southern needed to win to go to the SWAT championship. And I'm like, I said, ooh, 
I should have never counted Grambling out. Grambling said it don't matter. It don't matter. Uh, we three and four. We about to not. We about this to is our championship. It. Pretty much, that's their championship. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So love that. And then you know, more recently, I'm gonna say the Orange Blossom Classic, but I saw on Twitter y'all call it the Blue Blossom Classic. Uh oh. Which we are going to get into that in just a couple minutes. <laughs> it's just knowing that matchup has pretty much predicted the swag the last three, like two, three seasons. That's what's top on my list. You can't, I'm like, whoa, two heavy hitters going at it. Yep. You can't deny that. So those are my top three. This is where things get interesting. And we'll have all season to watch everything unfold. But I'm going to start with the swag first. Now, you know, you have said this to me even offline, but Jackson State fans are Jackson State fans. In the last two seasons, Jackson State has found its way in the Celebration Bowl. They also left the Celebration Bowl with two L's. Um, this is a whole new season now. And I, I don't mean no shade in it because I'm, I'm from Jackson. <laughs> like so I, know, I know it's absolutely no shade from you. Yeah. It's just good yeah. seeing a realistic perspective because, yeah. you know, like I, I – Notre Dame's a football school. I've heard, oh, Notre Dame doing this. I'm like, okay, okay, it's okay. I'm going to pray for you. I don't know. It might come from me being a Lions fan, a Pistons fan, and I'm used to disappointment. <laughs> so I like temper expectations. But it's like the realist. I'm like, I've been through this. The thing with Jackson I will say coming into this football season, Jackson has Jackson State has more unknowns than any other team. I will say TC Taylor recruited the hell out of that transfer portal high school, yeah. that roster he's comprised, excellent on paper. And the we've seen staff. numerous times coaching staff. We've seen numerous times where everything looks good on paper, but something isn't clicking on the field. And just looking at the way their season starts. They don't lull into their season. Oh, heck, you know, they don't have that real opportunity to learn each other, jail, build a rapport. Oh, they got heavy hitters. South Carolina yeah. State, fam, Southern. They have Texas State. They're all they're on the road the first half of the season. And it's yeah. like for a team that's had so much turnover, I don't think that's good to start off that hard. And who's to say, you know, you have a new quarterback. I don't know who's the quarterback that's going to be named. I know who Jackson State fans are hyping up. But when I watched that spring game, you know the quarterback that impressed me the most? Grayson Thompson. And he wasn't on anybody's list getting mentioned. No. I like this throw on time. You know, Jason Brown made a couple – is it Brown? Jason made a couple good throws. It's a couple throws where I'm like – he made one throw. I'm like, this is the difference Jackson State fans don't know. How elite Shadur was mm-hmm. and how great, how accurate he was and how he was able to lead his receiver with just enough to keep them going. It was like one throw. I'm like, I'm like one throw where I'm like, Shadur would have made that. That would have been six. Which, you know, it's still early. He still has time to develop that. But I don't think Jackson State fans realize how much Jackson, how well Jackson State did because they had the best quarterback in HBCU football, best and purest pocket passer. That's that right there alone put them ahead of a lot of teams. 
when you've got a quarterback that can make those 30, 40 yard throws. You don't see too many HBCU quarterbacks that can do that, comfortable doing that, that can run and scramble if needed. That was a big advantage, that defensive unit, big advantage. Oh, Aubrey Miller, James Houston. NFL right now, Aubrey didn't get drafted, but I would be very surprised if he isn't on the Dolphins roster this year. Isaiah Isaiah Bolden, drafted with the Patriots. I fully expect him to make the roster as well. That level of talent, but it's also that level of talent that had a rapport and they knew how to play together. This year, you ask it in so many new and moving pieces to come in immediately, and they – already have the expectations from last season kind of in their face. You got T.C. Taylor. He's, you know, he's been around football. He's still a first-year head coach. He's calling the shots this year. So there's just a lot, and I feel like their schedule doesn't give them any wiggle room to learn. It's like trial by fire instantly, and you don't know – I say Jackson State at best. At best, I'm going eight and three. That's, you know, those first couple weeks, they might split them two and two and then move on and dominate the rest. That eight and three still puts them in contention, potentially for a swag title. Right. It depends because you also have to, you know, if they do lose the fam, you you also got to count on, you know, the fam on the table. Because if they don't run the table, then that redemption's right there. So it's it's open, but at worst, you know, them figuring out, they don't figure out fast enough. I can see them being six and five. That struggling that first. That's my real, like, honest honest to God truth. That's my real core prediction. I think anywhere between six and five and seven and four is where they would finish, in my opinion. I can I can see it, and you know, from a team that's been undefeated in the swag for two years, I can see how that's a letdown. But also understand, this is a new team. You're gonna have to give them some wiggle room and some leash. But also, I feel like you know with TC, I feel like long term they're gonna be fine. Yeah, I have no issue with. They have good pieces, good talent. It's just you gotta. The ask is a lot so soon. I think fans will have to understand that. I mean, and like TC's well liked. Like, let's. That's also. I have to make sure I put that out there. Like, and granted, things change, and it's it's not about whether or not somebody, I guess, likes a coach. It's about how effective that coach is in helping that program and that team win. But I do think that he'll get some grace in this first season, considering all this the the success that has been, you know, through the program. Uh, But I think that the expectations for just this first season has to be, you know not as high as the last two seasons. Jackson State is still going to have a strong brand of, of, of football, not only just amongst HBCUs, but just football in general. The culture, all those things will still be there. Now, will the wins always, will the wins be the same as they were? We don't really know yet. But as you mentioned, like those first four games, it's going to be tough. Usually they don't play oh Southern God. until somewhere along the lines of mid-October or November. Yes, and that not only do you have South Carolina State, we know Buddy Pugh. Oh, we absolutely. know that team. And, we know that team is hard to come into play. 
Right. That's some yeah. nitty gritty. Dig your dirt in the feet. Dig your dirt. Heal in the ground. See what you can do. Are you going to get pushed off this line? Yes or no? You want to know the team I feel like has the most pressure? Fam, you. Oh, yeah. They have the absolute most pressure. Like, if I love Willie, I love the Rattlers, but if they don't win this year, go ahead, pack it up. Come on, go back to the MEAC. <laughs> you got to go back to the MEAC at that point. <laughs> I feel like they have the most because I do. They didn't have any turnover. Willie's still there. Coaching's still intact. Musa is back. You recruiting, recruited him some receivers to replace what you had in Xavier Smith. Fam, you didn't lose too much. They hit the positions that they need needed. You got younger. They got a couple tall guys at wide receiver. It didn't matter for Zay Smith. He was about five eight, five nine, and still yeah, yeah, he no, no taller than me. And they still did what they need to. I feel like fam, you, they, they have the pressure. I'm excited. I'm, I'm kind of hoping. I'm wondering, will the swag break through? You would have thought the last two years on paper the swag would have broken through, but that nitty gritty, that balance of MEAC football, I don't think it's going to happen this year. But I will say, this year I, Central still Central still strong. They're still my oh, favorite yeah. to repeat. That's that's my favorite coming out of the MEAC still. They still have Pee Wee Davius Richard. Yeah. He's still yeah. back. Yeah. He's a dog. I've seen this boy play healthy. I've seen him play hurt. I've seen him win a game with five touchdowns, and he can barely put any weight on his foot, on his ankle. So very tough. Still have Mookie Collier coming back. They added some receiver depth for him. I think Central's fine. Is it any specific team that you feel that could give Central a run for its money? In the MEAC, I'm going to go – Here's what I want to say. I'm going to go South Carolina State. South Carolina State had pretty much the work, like a terrible season last year, and they were still the t- only HBCU team to knock Central off. It's right. something about, you know, Buddy Pugh, his experience, his scheme that knows how to prepare those guys for those moments. Right. So even with the down year, you still knocked off the Celebration Bowl champion? That's incredible. So – it says a lot. So I will say South Carolina State, but also their biggest matchup is Howard. When I tell you, okay, I mentioned most people, a lot of Anscape is black. A lot of them are HBCU alums, primarily from Howard. Uh, I like what Larry Scott's doing. They're coming out of, you know, tumultuous era, and you can see the pieces getting put together. My Celebration Bowl prediction, I'm going to go Central, and I'm going to go FAMU. It might change midway through. You know, Southern might surprise me. I've seen what Hugh Jackson's done at Grambling. That's a team that I want to see what they I'm I'm, I'm intrigued to see see what they do. I'm mad Jackson doesn't play Grambling this year. There's a lot. There's so much up in the air. A lot of good players, household names that we've been watching for years have graduated. You're waiting on that next man up. Who's the next man up? Exactly. And it might take a couple of months to see that. Fam, you lost Isaiah Land. I'm like. And that's not something that you could easily replace. At, at all. all. At all. So who's who's stepping up there? But I want to shift gears really quick before I get you out. Um, 
while you do a lot of stuff in terms of covering HBCU sports, you also have done some stuff with women's sports, particularly uh, basketball. And you've had some great stories. I remember the story you did about the group of ladies that you talked about with the hairstyles, the protective hairstyles, and why they you know, braid their hair and, and things like that. But I want to ask you this. When you look at the state of women's basketball, uh, specifically college basketball, are you a fan of the transfer portal um, and what NIL has been able to do to transform the, the, the lane of women's college basketball as the way we see it now? Oh, absolutely. Big fan of Transfer Portal, big fan of NIL. And I just like how a lot of these things have worked together to grow the game of women's basketball. I remember growing up, one of the main reasons I applied to Notre Dame, I remember seeing Skylar Diggins. I remember the headbands. We all wanted to be like her and just seeing that type. Straight up, all of us seeing her as, you know, a young, beautiful woman that would kill her on the court. Yeah. dopest floater she's the reason i spent the whole summer in that gym on that floater it was just chef's kiss and yeah. i just remember love seeing that and now seeing how nil has kind of amplified that it's not just one player anymore multiple different players like seeing angel reese in her bag i'm like yes like she's actually benefiting off of this now some you right. know skylar diggins would have made bank autumn headbands we were buying that's just me and my friend group they Think had to match every Every single color. When I tell you I had black, white, I had a neon just because it, in case I wanted to show out, you had, she yeah. had zebra. You know, so I love how NIL, and I know people have so many different views on the transfer portal, but I like how, you know, it's added a little bit of parity. You know, you have teams that will stack up all this talent. When you stack up that much talent college-wise, not everybody plays. So you're seeing a lot of these, you might see five top players go to like, of South Carolina, not all five. Well, fortunately, that last group, the fabulous five with Aaliyah Boston, Zaya Cook, Letitia M here, Brie Beal, there's more. It's, that whole group stuck together and made it through, but not every group does that. So the transfer portal is just distributing some of that talent. Even if you look at the SWAC, top team in the SWAC, Jackson State has benefited off of that talent. You know, right. women's basketball, men's basketball, you want to know why Power Fives are book are thinking twice about booking HBCUs now because that talent has been spread and dispersed around so evenly that hold on, you you think you going to Jackson and getting the easy win? Yeah. Oh no, you saw a lot of upsets last year and a lot yeah. of these teams benefited yeah. off the transfer portal. You know, guy went to you know hometown kid went to a big school, didn't pan out, came to his local school and was balling out. He has that division with the talent. They can play. So I feel like when HBCU ball, it's actually, you know, initially people thought, you know, oh, it's going to, you know, hurt and harm HBCUs. No, that talent coming in, that they're building it out. And I think it's beautiful to see. That's why when you see some of those upsets, when you see Texas Southern doing some things, you're like, all corn. I said, see, this is that talent that's coming exactly. through. So I think it's been good have there been players that have been poached from hbcus yeah but on the it's not as bad it's more players more good players coming in than more players being poached right so it goes both ways i would like to see nil funnel a little bit more through hbcu communities just because i know how much 
support and pull the HBCU community has, there's no reason these brands shouldn't be reaching out to these athletes. You said you had some other projects that you're working on. What are some of those, if you can share with us, and where can people follow you to, to follow, continue to follow your work? I'm right now working on a project about, you know, HBCU facilities, you know, that costs what it takes to maintain some of these facilities. And, you know, a lot of what it takes, to, you know, raise money after seeing that Ed Reed debacle, it kind of had me thinking because I remember coming in. I'm like, man, I think I asked somebody, I'm like, OK, where, where's your practice facility? Because Notre Dame, when I tell you there was so much construction, men like our basketball team has a set they don't practice in the arena they have a separate area to practice football they don't practice in the stadium they have a practice field so just learning that and they're like no we practice they practice in the stadiums so learning that and just kind of diving deep into you know people talk about oh the facilities aren't as great but there are a lot of hbcus that have made that investment alabama state's one of them mississippi valley they, they're putting into their facilities. So just following what it takes to, you know, get these brand new fields, what it takes to upkeep them. And, you know, it's a couple schools that, you know, they're years out from getting a new field, but it's on their radar and they're raising money. So that's my next project, just to put some things into perspective. Look at some, you know, when people say don't go to an HBCU because their facilities are, you know, facilities aren't up to par. That's a whole discussion. Exactly. This is probably going to be a more than a one story project, but it's it one should probably be a series of stories. It's really going to be. So that's something I'm working on now. Anybody that wants to follow my work, you know, Twitter took away our checks. I know I'm sad. I had my check for like a couple months <laughs> before I got snatched by Elon Musk. But follow me at, at I am Mia Berry and also follow at Anscape. So we have a lot of work coming out. We're still doing you know, we had like our video podcast. We have work and things we're working on for this upcoming season, working on bringing a couple things back. Who knows? I might, you might be the first guest on my show. Oh, wow. That would be an honor. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Mia Berry is a star when it comes to covering HBCUs. Mia, thank you so much for coming on the show. And we will definitely talk soon again. Okay. Thank you for having me. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Red Diamond Report podcast. Until then, make sure to follow the podcast on Instagram at the RDR Report and follow me on Twitter at Wilton Reports and on Instagram at Wilton Reports underscore.